0: Daniel was our sound man this morning. Thank you, Daniel. All right, Dan. Well, good morning, everyone. We're moving right along at a fast and furious pace. Let me see. I think that. No, I thought that today we would be finished chapter 12, but it looks like it's going to take about. Wait a minute. I've turned to the wrong page. Hold on there. Yeah, I think we are. I think we're going to be finishing today, if I can remember correctly. Sometimes I get these things confused. I kind of get ahead of myself already, having done lessons ahead, and then I come in here, and I, I think we're, this is the lesson today. It says July 16th, so I think we're in pretty good shape on that one. Well, remember, what we're talking about here, as I said last week, is not only what Jesus does and how he handles issues, and how he deals with confrontation, not backing away from it, but standing against it in the will of God and for the purpose of God, how he ministers, what he says. And as believers, when we read all of this, we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to look at it as a wonderful example of look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, and that's fine. But remember what the Word of God calls us. We are called the body of Christ. So what does that mean? That we are on earth as He is. We are His image bearers. We are the ones in whom and through whom God is revealing himself through the Son. And so these are examples. And this is, as I said last week, from Matthew 5, actually a little bit in chapter 4, but after the temptation when Jesus leaves the wilderness. I believe when he leaves the wilderness, he could have gone directly into Gethsemane because the greatest battle is in Gethsemane. We talked about that. The battle for the will of man, for the salvation of man, the battle for that is in Gethsemane. The payment of that is at the cross. And so in Gethsemane, Jesus does what Adam did not do. He obeyed the will of the Father. In that garden, what was undone in the first garden was redone in this garden and then Jesus goes to the cross to pay the penalty for what was done in the first garden, having already decided to do the will of the Father. He goes to the cross and, of course, buried and is raised and sends the Holy Spirit after he is exalted. So as we read this, we're looking at our own lives. Let's make sure we are to be looking at our own lives, so making an assessment Is my life reflective of the life of Christ? Is my life being conformed to the image of God's Son as I look at the evidence of my thoughts, my words, and my deeds? Because you remember what we talked about last week. The judgment is coming. Didn't we talk about that last week? And every thought, every word, and every deed of every believer will be exposed on that day. We are forgiven, but God will evaluate us and then give to his people rewards and functional standing in the new kingdom according to their deeds, according to their words. We discussed that last week. You remember 1 Corinthians five ten. We talked about that. So this morning, let's continue looking at these episodes, which are episodes indicative of the opposition to Jesus by the spiritual leaders of Israel for the most part. Episode number 5, verses 38 to 40. Then some of the scribes, some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Now remember, we're talking about the Sabbath. Jesus has in their minds broken the Sabbath by eating. And you remember... And they say, "Teacher, we wish to see a sign for you, from you. You've just said that we can do this and this is lawful. Show us a sign. Where's your authority? Show us proof." But Jesus answered them, "An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what were the Pharisees doing? When they wanted a sign, they wanted a sign that would prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, they had already received many signs, remember. It's not that Jesus has never done anything and he said something one day or uh, broke a law or whatever, and all of a sudden they want something to prove that. I, they're correct in asking that. Any man who comes forth to declare himself to be from God should be rightly asked, show us your credentials. Show us the proof. That is not incorrect. Show us by your life. Show us by your deeds. Show us by your words. Show us by your personal life, your public life. Show us. That's a good thing. But you see, the fact of the matter is, Jesus has been showing them. And the issue with them isn't that we don't really know. We want to know. The issue with them is they are looking for opportunity to deny what he is doing, to show that he is wrong and he is not the Messiah. And so, because of the evil proclivity of their hearts, remember the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub. Because of that heart, Jesus said, You know, this kind of a generation, you're not going to get any sign except this one sign. And so there was this request is what? Another opportunity on their part to ensnare Jesus. Suppose some of us want a sign from God. Anybody ever ask for a sign? Come on. Anybody? Only three people in here have ever asked God for a sign. Come on, church. I would dare say that every one of us, we may not have said a sign, but we may have said, Lord, you know, if if this could happen, you know, and so Couching it in other terms because we dare not use the word sign because we think that to say asking for a sign is a a, 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 an indication of what unbelief. It isn't. It isn't. It could be, but not necessarily. It is a an indication of unbelief. It's not necessarily so. You know, if you've been in my office before, and there'll be times when after period of discussion and whatever and sharing in the office before couple leaves or the person leaves, I pray. And there have been occasions where I've just felt the Lord say, ask for a particular work of grace in their lives to encourage them or to show them that I'm at work, that there's hope, that things are going to be working according to my will. A sign. Billy, isn't that a sign? I prayed that way. Folks, some of you in this room have been in the room having heard that prayer. And I remember one time when I received the call back during the week to say, you asked for a sign or whatever the word was, a favor, I think it was. And the person said, when I got home, this and that happened, and God gave me something to encourage me. Sometimes we need something extra from God. Amen? Have you ever noticed that? Does that mean that we don't trust God? Does that mean that we're unfaithful? Does that mean that our faith is being washed away? No. You know what it means? Listen to me what it means. It means that we are human beings needing from time to time a little extra from our Heavenly Father. Can you go with that? It doesn't mean if you show me this, then I'll believe. Or if you don't show me this, I'm not believing anymore. It doesn't mean that at all. I've sometimes said to the Lord, Lord, you know I trust you, and I don't need this sign in order to verify that you are with me and are doing the work. I don't need the sign for the basic issue of my fellowship and function and relationship with you. But if you would I would like to have a little encouragement or indication in this area or that area or the other area. So let's be free, free from any condemnation or worry about this. And let's accept the fact of our humanity and that all of us from time to time need a little extra. It's called spiritual lanyap. Those of you who for not New Orleans, you don't know what the word lanyap means, you can spell it by saying laganapi. And if you don't know what lanyap means, go ask somebody. It means a little extra, amen? So let's be careful when we look at these things about signs in the Bible, and Jesus is condemning it, but he's condemning it from a heart that disbelieves and is rejecting, not from a heart that believes and is seeking, okay? Now, somebody apparently needed that because that ain't in the notes. Jesus told them that they would be given only one sign of his authority, of his words and deeds. What is that sign? As Jonah was in the we- belly of the whale, or the whale, sorry, the great fish, it didn't say whale, the great fish, for three days and three nights, so also will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Now, what is that sign of? That's the sign of the resurrection. There is one sign that is the Definitive sign that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah of the world. There is only one sign. All the other signs point to that sign. But that one sign verifies and authenticates everything about who Jesus is and what he has said. And what is that one sign? The resurrection. That is the event upon which the whole of Christianity rests. Because if Jesus is not the Son of God, there would never have been a resurrection. If Jesus had not paid the penalty of our sin at the cross, there would never have been a resurrection. And because there was a resurrection, that guaranteed that God's people would be saved and would come into the kingdom of God. The resurrection is the pivot, the fulcrum of everything of who we are in Christ and everything of the truth of the gospel. So this particular sign, the sign of Jonah, three days and three nights, has two truths in it. First of all, look at the word that says, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. You see where I am, the Son of Man. Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man several times, mostly in the Gospel of John, but the Son of Man, the Son of Man. The first truth, the Son of Man, is that phrase that declared that Jesus is the divine figure of Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. When the Pharisees heard Jesus say the Son of Man, they first understood Him to be referring to Himself. They knew He was talking about Himself. And when they heard the word Son of Man, the phrase the Son of Man, when they heard that, they didn't have to sit around and think, I wonder why He did that. Who's the Son of Man? What is that? They know the Scripture, and immediately their minds immediately would have gone to Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 describing this great scene in heaven, and here's part of the quote, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's the term for God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. This is from Daniel. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That is a major, major revelation. And when it talks about a kingdom and a dominion everlasting, where is that from? What does that bring into your mind? What prophecy, what promise does that bring into your mind when you read the words in the Old Testament, a dominion or a kingdom that shall last forever? 2 Samuel, remember chapter 12, where the Lord is talking to David, and he said, "'I will make of your, you, know, you a dynasty, and from you shall come another king, a son.'" Remember, the son of David, David's greater son. "'And of his kingdom there shall be no end. It shall be an everlasting kingdom.'" And the immediate revelation of that and outworking of that was the birth and the rule and the reign of Solomon, which was the earthly manifestation, at least during the, the good part of Solomon's life before he went off into sin, of the ruling and reigning and glorious king upon the throne. Because when Solomon is enthroned, and it says in 2 Chronicles chapter, whew, there it goes, old man, chapter, forget it, at the end of the second uh, Samuel, it says, and Solomon sat on the throne of God over Israel, the throne of God. And Solomon is enthroned. After David dies, Solomon comes forth. And when he's enthroned, then he gives the command by the will of God to build the temple, And once the temple is built, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes in. Remember in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Is it 2 Chronicles or 1 Chronicles? 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I don't know where my mind is today about the Scripture, but we'll have to help them. You need to pray for me about that. And the Holy Spirit comes down and fills the temple. What what do we see there? All of that is in this Son of Man. Why do I take time to say this? Because we want to look at the Word to see the enormity of what Jesus is saying to these people. The enormity. All of this is gathered into that. And so what does that say? That David's son, anticipating the Messiah, the King, shall be raised up and shall ascend into the throne. And from the authority of his throne shall give command to the building of his house. And that house will be built by the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see all of that fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. After Jesus has risen, after he has ascended, after he has been exalted and crowned king of kings and lord of lords, then he does what was pictured in Solomon. Do we see that? When Jesus says the son of man, these Pharisees must be standing and saying, Either this man is completely insane or something incredible is happening. You see, this little term, the Son of Man, just four little words, gathers together the enormity of the work of God. And it also, and you know I have to do this, it also gathers in what God had promised in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in creating Adam. Amen? That's what it's all about. So that's what we see here. That's the first part. The second truth, I'm going to try to get through this lesson today. Please, I'm going to put tongue-in-cheek. Forgive me if I don't. Sometimes I can. Sometimes I can't. I see somebody nodding back there. Yes, I understand that. The second thing is this. The second truth, well, there's another terminology also remind us. Remember the. the, the The uh, child is born and so on, that Emmanuel, remember that that's gathered into this also. The second truth of Jonah and the three days is obviously the resurrection, the resurrection truth. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh, Jesus said, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, you people are rejecting what I'm doing. But when God gave the sign of Jonah, when Jonah went to Nineveh to preach repentance and you know, judgment to that city, That was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, remember? Can you imagine someone going to Russia has conquered us and everything, and someone, Lord says, send somebody to Russia and to Moscow to cause repentance of these people. Are you kidding? Let's burn them down. They're our enemies. And when that city heard that, they repented. And Jesus says, someone, something greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself. The queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, this generation that is condemning and rejecting Christ. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. See, what Jesus knew was this. Even the resurrection, the clearest and most powerful proof that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. Remember that quote from 2 Corinthians chapter 5? The definitive proof that God was in Christ reconciling himself, the world unto Himself. They still rejected it. Why? Because you see, their evil hearts were shut against the truth And the only way the evil heart can see and receive the truth is if God unlocks the heart. We do see that. That means this, that as we teach and preach the gospel, we must recognize that the ministry that we are conveying through thought, word, and deed to others, we are conveying it to people whose hearts are locked down by and in Evil having absolutely no opportunity or ability in themselves to receive and believe and walk in, etc., this word of truth. We have to see that. Because if we don't see that, we are going to think that maybe I can talk them into it or convince them, or if I can say a couple of more words, and we get into a works issue and begin to wear ourselves out and the other people out because we think that by whatever it is that we're doing, that some way they will get the truth. It will get through and penetrate those hard cell walls and get into them, and they'll be saved. Well, that's not the truth. And so as we share, let's remember the condition of the person being shared with. Secondly, let's hope. Now, you see, I said hope because I don't know. Let's hope that the person or persons we're speaking to are those whom God has ordained before the foundation of the world to be his children. Amen? Let's hope that. We don't know. The only way to know is when they get saved. I don't know. So we minister and preach to everybody. So, we hope that the person I'm talking to, Father, I pray that this person or your people are in this group whom you will save either today or use this word today as a seed that will bring forth eternal life at your time. Amen? Otherwise, it ain't happening. Evil hearts. And so that generation will condemn this generation because those people, those people repented just from an old prophet coming into town and yelling and screaming at them the judgment of God. And here we have the revelation of the resurrection and people are still rejecting. Why? Not because there's not enough truth. Not because there's not enough information. Not because the church is not doing enough. Simply because they cannot and they will not unless or until the Holy Spirit unlocks the heart. Verse 43, when unclean spirit has gone out of a person, Jesus is talking about this issue of the evil heart and the control of a person's mind and body. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, "I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds a house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and then they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first state. So also it will be with this generation. You see, Jesus is returning to his original instant, uh, the uh, the original incident of casting out the demons." Our greatest need as unbelievers, when we were unbelievers, is to have the demonic control of our lives broken. You know, I would encourage you when you read your Bible, read it to see how hopeless everyone is apart from Christ. We must be better convinced of that. Freedom from demonic possession necessitated a change of authority. We were born under the authority of Satan, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And as such, we had no ability to in any way will anything else. 2 Timothy 2.25 says that we were under Satan's control to do his will. And so be careful how you understand what we call the free will of man. We have free ability or the ability to make free choices, but within the context of being incarcerated before we were saved. So picture yourself in a prison cell. Within the context of the prison cell, I had the ability to make a decision to either stand up or lie down to either eat or not eat the food that is put in there, to do whatever I need to do and can do within the context of the cell. I have that free choice. But I have absolutely no free ability or free will to unlock my cell from the cage. So we have to be careful when we're talking about free will. In fact, the word free will is only used in the Old Testament and only in reference to giving or offerings. It is never a New Testament term, and it's not even in the Old Testament having to do with your free ability to search for and find God. We have a free choice within the context of our authority. In Satan, if you were to in Adam under Satan's control, I have a lot of free choices. I can go out and be as good a person in society as I want to be, but I'm still in the cell. So I can live in my cell and make it real clean and keep it clean, Bob. Or I can live in my cell as an animal and trash it. I can go from one to the other, but what's the problem? I'm still where? In the cell. But once we're freed from the cell and the authority of Satan has been broken at the cross, it was broken, that means that now I have the free ability to choose how to live under my new authority in Christ. Does that make sense to you? Okay? And I can live, as it were, still occupying the cell as a free man wouldn't that be crazy or I can come out of the cell into the light and begin to live life to the fullest and to enjoy the abundance of God somewhere someone said I give you life and abundantly somebody said that to somebody somewhere There are too many believers, and all of us to some extent in some areas, but too many believers, who ever remain in the cell. We don't have to. You don't have to live in the cell of hatred, of anger, of lust, of jealousy, of unforgiveness. You don't have to be living that way. All you're doing is letting someone put chains around you who has no authority, and all you need to do is to say, leave me alone. Get out of here. Rebuke this thing, and the chains fall off. See, Jesus has freed us from the authority of sin, Satan, and death. Can you get that? He has freed us. There is absolutely... No reason for any of us ever again to commit purposeful, understood sin is not a reason. doesn't matter how you're treated, what you did, they did, why they did it, who did it, why you know it hasn't there's no reason ever to sin again. Why? The authority of sin has been what? broken, Romans 6, 2. Don't you know that we who died to sin died to its authority? We died to sin's authority. Okay? So can we get that today? Jesus has come into our lives to clean it out. He has bound the strong man. But look what he said. He said, I'm cleaning you out. But now you can let these things back into your life if you choose you can let anger frustration adulteries hatreds slanders whatever back into your life but we don't have to do we i remember years ago praying the lord deal with me in a particular area to, to If you would, and I, I use the analogy, Father, would you uproot this thing that is in my heart and cast it out? And the Lord actually did. And then, sometime later, I felt this activity coming back. And I said, I thought the Lord uprooted it. And it came to me really clearly. Yes, I uprooted it. But in any good garden, when you uproot a bramble bush, take it out, what have you left there? A big one in the ground, hole. What as a good gardener should you do with that hole? Plant something else in it. And so I asked the Holy Spirit to plant the work of grace in the area from which that thing came. Jesus said, Fill it up with other things of grace. So sometimes when you're praying about God, would you deal with this issue when you break this issue with me? Great. But then on the other side, ask him to plant in its place the good work of grace. Otherwise, we have a garden, many of us, with big old holes in it. <laughs> and three little flowers, but a bunch of holes. Episode 6, 46 to 50. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mom and them stood outside. Now, if you don't have that translation, you're reading a bad translation. (laughs) Asking to speak to him. Your mama, your mama and your brothers. oh, Oh, good, good. Family, family. People who care and love Jesus are there. People who care and love him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who's my mama? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mama and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mama. His family was coming to see him. But Jesus seems to rebuke them, rebuff them. Why? Why does he do that? What's going on here? If you read the companion rest of the story in Mark 321, it says this. At verse 46, it says this. When his family heard it about all the work and all the things that are happening and what he's doing and so on, the way he's ministering, they went out to restrain him for people were saying he's gone out of his mind. (coughs) They're coming to put him away. They tell him he needs a vacation. And so, you see, even the family comes. And the family who cares for him doesn't understand. Now, we have to be careful here. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, have family members who not only don't understand what is happening in us, but who oppose it? Why? What do we do about it? Well, too often I've heard this from family members, I mean, from the believers who have family members like this. They, the believer, becomes antagonistic and critical and judgmental of the family member. And I've asked them a couple of times, well, if this is your mama, let's say it's your mother, Chris. It's your mother. And do you think your mother loves you? Well, yes, she loves me. Do you think your mother's looking for the best? Yes. What do you think is really happening in your mama? Well, she doesn't like it, but Why? Well, I don't, I don't, I mean, I just, all I know, why? She's afraid. She may be afraid for you. If she was raised in a particular denomination which says if you're not part of that denomination, you're anathematized, in other words, you're going to hell. Think about it. If your, if your parents and you were raised in a church that said you're going to hell unless you are a member of this church, David, that's what you've learned all your life. That's what you believe. And all of a sudden, your son, Peter, goes to another church, a different church. Would you be afraid for your son's destiny? And would you try to do whatever you could to oppose that and bring him back in? Wouldn't you? Yes. So, you see, it's not that David Canella is such a monster. It's that David Canella loves his son and is scared to death that his son may miss God. That's the point. So his son is named Peter. Isn't that an interesting name? Every time in the morning I see him, I say, what's your name again? Peter. Okay, I just have to remember that. I kind of, I lose that name sometimes. And so what should Peter's response be? My daddy doesn't love me. They don't care anymore. They're opposing me. No. His daddy does care. Now, there are a few parents who really are cantankerous and nasty and mean and like snakes. But for those of us like that, we have to repent. (laughs) What does Peter do? Peter prays for his parents. Peter cares for his parents. Peter ministers under the leading of the Holy Spirit as much as he is understood to do to his parents. And he prays and hopes that God will save his parents through his own witness. But he doesn't angrily reject them, argue with them, storm out of the house, and, you know, and this and that, and you're going to hell because you don't believe in Jesus and whatever. Because that would cause the parents to be doubly concerned because look what they've done to the attitude of my son. David, Right? Right? Jesus rejects not the parents and the family. Jesus is not rejecting his parents, his family, is he? What is he rejecting? He's rejecting their misunderstanding and their misdirected zeal for him. Isn't that what he's rejecting? Please remember this as we all live in a context where We have family members who think maybe we're crazy or we're religious fanatics or we don't, whatever it is. Let's remember this. And let's be used by God to actually see the things of God happen in their lives that we want. And let's be tools of God rather than tools of the flesh as we respond and go after our people. So you see, Satan had attempted to use Jesus' natural family as a weapon against him. Jesus was not so much rebuffing his natural family as he was affirming, rebuffing Satan's opposition through the family. You understand that? He was rebuffing Satan's opposition through the family. Jesus saw that the real opposition was not his natural family, but Satan, we must see things clearly spiritually. So then Jesus used the occasion once again to say that his real family is what? We're the family of God. We are the family of God. So next week, I think it's, uh, have we finished chapter 12? We did? Actually, we finished it? Somebody give us a hand. (laughs) All right. chapter Chapter 13, there are about eight parables. Some, of them, A couple of them are not parables, but we'll say it anyway. There are eight parables that, again, describe the kingdom of God. As we move forward, we'll start next week into chapter 13. Thank you so much.